This is This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, episode number four, for the week of July 6th through the 12th. Now pitching Rick Nash. This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball brought to you by the Fansided Network at fansided.com, covering every team. There's no offseason at Fansided. Coming up in episode number four, Greg Eno, J.L. Lamby, and John Brun join us to talk about this week's action. The crew also hits on some of the news surrounding your team. Is it possible the Tigers could have two infielders from Virginia Commonwealth in 2010? Matt Wallace of Take 75 stops by to discuss top second base prospect Scott Sizemore, future at the big league level. It's time to celebrate good times. Throw your hands in the air like you just don't care. Brandon Ange is heading to St. Louis and blasting homers in the derby, and he's going to represent strong. It's time for this week in Detroit Tigers baseball episode four. It starts right now. High drive into left field. This ball is hit well, way back. Luciano will watch it fly. It's gone. For second, the 1-0. Swinging a fly ball. Left field is deep. It's way back. The Tigers are going to the World Series. Bringing the best Detroit Tigers bloggers together to talk about our team. Sponsored by MotorCityBengals.com. It's This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, and it starts now. You're listening to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball on MotorCityBengals.com. This week, joined by Greg Eno of GregEno.com. You can catch him on the airwaves as well. The Knee Jerks, Greg. Pretty good show. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Also joined by Jay Ellett Lamby of IOfTheTigers.com and John Brunn of TigerGeist.com. We've got a lot to get to this week, a lot of great play, some bad play as well. Let's start off right away with the Detroit Twins weekend series. And one of the things I noticed, they only win one out of three, but one thing I noticed that I was really taken away with was Justin Morneau and Joe Maurer. Are they the best combination in the game? That's the first question in this episode, we'll go to Greg on this. What do you think about that? You think these are the two best? Well, I mean, if you're saying are they the two best left-handed combination, uh, left-handed hitting combination, uh, you know, I think you can make a very good case for that. Mauer hits almost 400 right now, and more knows like an RBI machine, and he has been. I thought that the supreme example of that was Friday night in the 16-inning game when Jim Leland had uh, Joel Zemaya walk both of those guys in the 11th inning to fill the bases knowing darn well that Joel sometimes struggles with his control and was in the middle of a 52-pitch effort, but was was determined not to let either of those guys beat him with the, with the runner on third base. So, you know, that's incredible respect. And I, I think that, especially in that dome, those two guys are just absolutely uh, poison, especially uh, in situations where the, when there are uh, men on base. Let's talk about that situation where Joel Zemaya walks both of them. We'll go to Jay Ellett. This is an interesting situation, a move that either some hated and some liked. What did you think when you saw that? Well, I wasn't surprised. Joe Maurer and Justin Morneau, in addition to being great hitters overall, uh, they're both great fastball hitters. And uh, I don't care how fast Joel throws it. Major league hitters can time him. They're going to hit him eventually. And uh, I wasn't really surprised to see it. Joel had better career split numbers against the hitters behind them. Uh, it was a sign of respect, and and I, I will give Jim Leland credit. He basically said, look, if, if the Twins are going to beat us, I'm not going to let their two best guys beat us. I'm going to make somebody else in that lineup driving the winning run. So uh, I wasn't too surprised by it, and ultimately it turned out to be the right move. Going to John and Tiger, guys, a 16-inning game, were you able to catch it all? 
Yeah, I felt good. I turned it uh, on in the seventh, so I, I watched nine innings, which I felt <laughs> tired game in. Um, but yeah, I mean, on the West Coast, it was pretty easy. But at that point, it was it was pretty hard to turn off. And then once uh, once Dickey went in, uh, Detroit has historically, uh, whether he was with what Texas and Seattle, have uh, historically teed off on him pretty well. Even though he's having it seems to be a pretty good year, I was pretty confident at that point that even Dulce wasn't going to blow that one. Yeah, that was a really interesting situation. Uh, not many know, but I work for a radio station. I pushed the buttons for the game. I was there all 16 innings up to 2 a.m., and then I had to call a baseball game the next morning at 9 a.m. So pretty pretty interesting situation. I'll tell you what, though. I was pretty scared Dulce might give it up, and then I might have to be there for 20 innings. Once you saw Galarraga on the mound, too, you are just like, man, this could really ruin their weekend. Yeah, and it really did stretch out that bullpen. I want to talk a little bit about that. You think that had an effect going into this series, the rest of the series, the fact that that bullpen was pretty worn out after game number one? We'll go to Greg on that. You don't want your bullpen, obviously, to pitch any more than it has to. And when you have a five-run lead, even though you're playing in the Dome, um, you're not expecting certainly to to use up all those arms uh, in that particular game. And then you have to also take into consideration that was the night before a day game because they played a Saturday afternoon game the day after. And it changes the way, you know, you manage. Uh, I think it changes the way a little bit you, the, the way you manage that particular game, and it, and it certainly could have an impact on how you manage the other two games. But I, I think that um, Jim did a good job. I, I was impressed with how he stuck with Zamaya. I know 52 pitches is, is a lot. But Joel, that might have been, that might have been his, maybe his gutsiest performance as a Tiger in terms of just grinding it out. Obviously, we talked about the, the bases loaded situation where uh, he got out of it after walking Morneau and, and Maurer. I, I was really proud of him. I, I, when I say him, I mean Joel Zamaya as well, uh, because he, he, uh, he really, Jim invested confidence in, in Joel, and Joel re- responded by, by just carving up uh, uh, Kadair on three pitches. It was uh, quite, a, quite an impressive performance. Yeah, I had my fist pumping, that's for sure. We'll talk a little bit more about Joel Zumaier or Fernando Rodney later in the show, especially in that loss against Kansas City. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I want to get to Luke French. He's on the mound tonight against the Royals, and he, he started that 16-inning game. We'll go to Jay Ellett right away on this. What was your thought on his first performance? Well, I think he's been a, as good as we expected so far. It's a baptism by fire, and it worked both ways, where he's going to – be a little overwhelmed, but opposing hitters don't have that collection of film and, and data on him to, to study off of. So the first uh, 20, 25 innings of a guy's career are typically going to be about a wash in that regard. But uh, I like the potential that he brings. Uh, being the only left-hander in the rotation obviously gives the team uh, something they dearly need. His last three years in the minor leagues, uh, in 2007, was an A ball, 2008, double A, and this year in triple A. His hits per nine innings have gone down those three years consecutively, which is a good sign. He's a, had a 215 batting average against versus left-handers this year, which tells me that he at least has an opportunity to get left-handers out at the big league level. So I'm excited about what I see so far, and I'm hoping at minimum – he can give the Tigers 10 or 12 strong starts until the back end of the rotation works out sometime in August. Talking about that back end of the rotation, pretty interesting right now. Jeremy Vonderman, he's optimistic, 50-50 on returning this year. Does he have a chance to be in this rotation at the end of the year? I know we talked about that a little bit in the, later in the episode. I'll go with John on this one. It's hard to say. I don't, I'd rather have him rested. I'd rather have him get healthy. He still needs another pitch. 
I'm fine with. I mean, if he gets a spot start here or there in September, that's fine. If they make the playoffs, he's not going to be in the rotation anyway. I'm really for just uh, resting Bonderman and, and getting him healthy and, you know, and getting him a uh, full time and a full, uh, full resting time and a full spring training under his belt. Well, that does bring up a good question. Does Jeremy Bonderman really have a good chance to be in the rotation in 2010? We'll go to Greg and answer it, I guess, considering the fact that just assuming that he'll be better. Well, that's a big assumption, obviously. Um, right. Clearly, you know, he was brought back too soon uh, this year. Uh, that was evident in that start that he made. But, you know, he's a young guy. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a tough kid. I, I, I've talked to him on a number of occasions. He, he looks you straight in the eye, and he, um, he's got a lot of, de- of determination. And uh, if anybody can do it, you know, it's, I know it sounds cliche, but I, I think he can. Um, uh, he's the kind of guy that uh, I think um, – don't forget, he was he, he. There wasn't too long ago when he was the ace of the staff, really, before Verlander came about. And even though the team wasn't very good, he was kind of the guy. And uh, so he's got that. He's and pitchers have that that uh, that ego that uh, that says that uh, they, they don't want to be the guy that's going to be the one dragging the rotation down. I think that he can do it. You know, whether they'll count on him from the opening day or not, I don't know. But I can certainly see him making twenty twenty five starts next year and being maybe a number four guy in the rotation. Well, let's take a look at that Kansas City Royals series going on right now. Tough loss to open up the series. Zoom gives up a few, and then Rodney blows the tie. Let's talk a little bit about Jim Leland's decision to bring in Fernando Rodney in the ninth. It seems like he's set now in this rotation of no matter what the game is, if it's close, Lions coming in in the seventh, Zumaya's coming in in the eighth, and Rodney's coming in if it's a tie ball game or if it's a safe situation in the ninth. We'll go to John right away on this one. Simply, is this the way you want to do it with the tie ball game? Do you bring in Fernando Rodney? You have to, don't you? Yeah, yeah, and that and that's been his, his mo ever since Todd Jones. He always brings in the closer in the in the top of the ninth, um, you know, hoping for the victory at the end. I'm starting to wonder if if, if Bobby C isn't a guy that's going to start getting more uh, just regular innings versus just going against left-handers. Um, I guess Lyon for now has been doing a fine job, but I start I'm starting to wonder if that's if, if he's going to make his way into the seventh or eighth inning as well. Yeah, it's a good question. You guys got other thoughts on this? Despite the the logic, and it's strictly based on numbers, which I realize is not always the best way to to make a pitching decision, but for whatever reason, Fernando Rodney in non-save situations this year, he's perfect in save situations, we know this. In non-save situations, 19 innings pitched, 15 earned runs, 21 hits, 9 walks. That's pretty significant. If you compare those side-by-side with the save numbers, for whatever reason, he's a different pitcher. I I don't pretend to be a psychologist. I can't figure out why, if the game is tied or they have a big lead, he falters. But he does. And there's a big enough sample size now to demonstrate that it happens consistently. So at some point, I would hope that the pitching staff would work to figure out why that is. And in the interim, I think Jim Leland needs to go with the Bobby C of Brandon Lyon or someone else in that situation to buy time. It is pretty odd, the, the dichotomy in numbers between the save situations and the non-save situations, although you would think that a, a tie ball game is about as close to a save situation as you're going to get, and I can see maybe the concentration lagging in a, in a situation where he's got a big leader or something like that uh, where the numbers might get kind of skewed. But in a tie ball game, I think that's a close – you would think that's close enough to a save situation for all intents and purposes, that that wouldn't that whatever <laughs> whatever demons he has when he's got a big lead, uh, it wouldn't necessarily crop up. But it it's it, it's just it might just be one of those baseball quirks 
one of those quirky stats that you really can't explain. I mean, uh, sometimes that happens. You just you can't even really explain why those kinds of numbers even come about. It is an interesting situation, and, and going into the ninth inning, you got to wonder who else they could go to if they've used Zumaya, if they use Lyon. There's also Bobby C, maybe a Freddie Dolce, maybe somebody else, maybe a Ryan Perry comes up down the stretch. Do you think a guy like Ryan Perry or Freddie Dolce that they can finish in the ninth inning in, in a tie ball game? We'll go to Jay Ellen with that. Uh, I'm going to say no at this point, and I realize that I'm quickly running out of options for guys to pitch <laughs> in that situation, but uh, Ryan Perry may throw incredibly hard, but his control is suspect. And in pressure situations, to put a guy that young who struggles to throw strikes on the hill, you're asking for trouble. Uh, Freddie Dulce, I, I think you're looking at the same situation. They both have tremendous physical ability and uh, you know have the the chance to become solid relief pitchers down the road. But I don't think they're ready yet. I, I think if anything in that situation. Uh, you're either going to have to bite your lip and go with Rodney despite the numerical evidence, or you're, you're going to have to, to look to a Bobby C. Well, let's take a look at game number two. A better performance than game number one. 11 strikeouts for Justin Verlander. Five runs given up, only three of them earned. The offense did hit the ball. A lot of home runs in that ball game. Marcus Timms goes deep. Placido Polanco, Miguel Cabrera. But Bruce Chen was able to shut down the Detroit's first eight batters, seven of the first eight so the question remains, this offense continues to struggle. We're going to go to John on this one. You live in the San Francisco area. You went and saw the Giants today. These two teams are pretty comparable, aren't they? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, it's all relative because the leagues aren't necessarily equal and the divisions aren't equal. Um, the parks are kind of equal, so they're both kind of pitchers' parks. Detroit's got a better defense. The Giants probably have a better off. I'm sorry, excuse me. The Giants probably have a better pitching staff, uh, especially the top three starters. And uh, uh, But the Giants... The Giants' offense is just inept. They're just downright awful. In Detroit, you look down their lineup, it's like they should be better. They're just, it seems like when everything's clicking, they all click at the same time, and they all struggle at the same time. And that is what's so maddening about their inconsistency. That's why I pretty much asked John about the question about the Giants is because of that inept offense lately for the Tigers at times. Like we mentioned in game number two, going the first seven of the eighth shut down in order by a guy like Bruce Chen who struggled throughout his whole career. We'll go to Greg on this one. And what do you think about this offense news coming out today that Megley Ordonez, he'll be only hitting against left-handed pitchers? Do you think this offense can rebound a bit in the second half? I'm going to take that question with the assumption that, with the assumption that they don't get a bat at the trading deadline. And no, I don't think so. I think that uh, there's a different dyna- dynamic with this offense uh, for whatever reason. Uh, Curtis Granderson, and, and I love Curtis Granderson, but I don't, I can't believe he made the All-Star team. Frankly, uh, he's got a lot of home runs, but his batting average is down. His doubles are down. His triples are way down. He's not the same kind of slap hitter that uh, that he's that he's been. That's made that offense go. Placido Polanco is falling in love with the home run now. He's not the same guy. He's hitting like 260, about 40 points below what you thought he might hit. There's, there's something different about what, what those two guys are bringing to the table right now, and it's, and it's seeming to bleed down to the rest of the order. Now, as far as Maglio goes, these are the kinds of things that you try when you're desperate, and uh, things like only playing him against lefties and setting him down. Jim said he was, gonna, he was sitting him down a couple weeks ago, and it was going to be indefinite. And then Scott Boris got involved, and indefinite got all turned out to be five games all of a sudden, which was kind of, I thought that was odd. <laughs> so I don't know really what to make of this whole thing. I think it smacks of desperation. I think that, uh, you know, to Jim's credit, he's, I don't know what else he can do at this point. Um, you know, I mean, I think it's worth a try. 
uh, anything is at this point. If you don't, especially if you're not going to, if you can only play the cards that you're dealt. If we, if, the, if Jim gets a, another bat after July 31st, then maybe something will change. But right now he's got to go with what the horses he has. And um, if that means Maglo against lefties, then, then that's, then that's what he's going to have to do. I think it's interesting to note as well that they might not, maybe they don't add a bat, but a guy to watch is Carlos Guillen, who says he could be back by the end of the month. Maybe this move, Ordonia is only hitting against left-handers, is preparing for that. Can Guillen be a force in the lineup? Maybe not even a force, just produce in the lineup when he comes back. The thing about Guillen is his power numbers are way down. Everything's really uh, just been gone downhill for him. Now, if he can be consistent and have a high average, which in the beginning of last year he was just murdering the ball, if he can get to that where he's just he's hitting doubles and he's just a steady presence in the lineup, he can be a fantastic addition. The question is, what can you expect out of him? He only does it in spurts at this point. He seems to get hurt every month or every you know, 35 days or so. So it's a question of what you can expect from him, but um, it's not going to be power, that's for sure. Talking about Guillen, offensively, he could be a force. The question is, will he play in left field? And if he stays healthy, like John mentioned, he could be valuable. But will he be the DH or will he stick in left field? We'll go with JL with that. I think Carlos is only valuable to this team as a DH right now. His shoulder, by all reports, can heal enough where he can swing the bat. How effective he'll be is another question. But throwing the ball is is going to be a concern, and not to mention that leg problems are no stranger to Carlos Guillen. Uh, his mobility is down. The Comerica Park outfield is big, and range is essential for this team to compete and keep the pitcher's ERAs down. I don't see how he can he can be effective out there maybe once in a while to give somebody a break, although with the platoon that seems to be going on in the outfield spots, I don't see any reason to, to chance it. Well, we got a pretty tight race here in the Central Division. Chicago acquiring a bullpen arm. They're only two games back now. Minnesota falls to two and a half games back. This is going to be an interesting race down the stretch. I was I joined Seth Speaks at SethSpeaks.net to talk about the Central Division. It's going to be a pretty close race, I would think. What do you think, Greg? You think the White Sox have a chance to remain in this race throughout the year? Oh, I think so. I think Paul uh, Canerco is coming back, bouncing back from a a very poor year that he had last year. Um, they've got enough hitting. The pitching is not great, but you know I think that they can slug it away with a division. I don't think the Tigers can. I think the Tigers of the three, and I think it's going to be a three-horse race, are probably the weakest hitting team right now of the three in terms of just looking at the lineup up and down and overall consistency. The Tigers had a chance to create some space between themselves and the rest of the division when the rest of the division was playing under 500 and they didn't do it. And now they're starting to see why that was so crucial. Uh, but the White Sox are, are I thought, were, were underachieving anyway, and I think they're starting to play now the way that I thought that they would play from, uh, from the get-go. Let's go to John with the next question. We're talking about the trade deadline rate over there, we talked a lot about that in the last episode, but you mentioned a couple of interesting trade scenarios on your website not too long ago, one of them being Placido Polanco. You think a deal could really get done? You think that the Tigers might trade him? What do you think the percentages are, too, on that? I always thought 50% what it would be for, for Placido, because I thought he would be the least impact the lineup and to the team and he really probably has the best value to a National League team. I mean, the Giants are, are, are throwing out their career minor leaguers. And, you know, if you can steal a prospect or a player that can help you either this year or next year, I think it, it'd be foolish not to do that. More teams, more and more teams are looking at that they're just not going to take on salary, which is just the most surprising thing for even like Boston and New York. 
Detroit's willing to eat some salary on like a Blanco, you know, they could make, possibly get a, you know, a player or a prospect back or maybe a bullpen arm or something. That is a very good possibility. Placido Polanco, I'll admit it. He's my favorite Tiger during that whole slogan, who's your Tiger? That's the guy I rooted for. But hes it's obvious out there, as Greg mentioned earlier, that he's not quite the same player. We'll go to Jay Ellett on this one. Can he possibly rebound going into the second half? Are, are we looking at something that can be changed, or is this just the way that Placido plays now? I think he can rebound, and I actually expect he will. Uh, and the main reason is Placido Polanco and – has never relied on the home run uh, as his calling card. I know Greg mentioned earlier the fact that he's swinging for the fences a little more this year, and, and, and that's true when you watch him swing away. But Polly's a contact hitter. Uh, his eyes are still good. Uh, his batting average on balls in play has been uh, freakishly low this year, and over time those things tend to work themselves out. Uh, he's a significantly better hitter in Comerica Park than he is on the road. And keep in mind, the Tigers play 45 of their final 79 games at Comerica Park. So I would fully expect that by the end of the season, he'll be around the 280 to 290 range, even if he's still hitting at 260, 265 and playing the kind of defense he's capable of. Uh, I don't see any reason to move him. As we come to the All-Star break, you talk about Rick Porcello. He's missing his scheduled start before the All-Star break, possibly to give the young man some rest. He has struggled lately. We'll start with Greg on this, and is this a good decision by Jim Leland just to give him one start off? Well, I think so. I, I think a kid like this, there's no reason. It's kind of something that you, you feel as a manager when you kind of know the time is right to do that. I think this is as good as time as any when you can kind of parlay a missing start with an All-Star break to really give him – some time uh, you know hey if he makes 20 to 25 starts this year uh rather than 30 to 35 that's as far as i'm concerned that's okay i mean this is this kid is 20 he could be in detroit for 10 12 years so him missing a start now you know in the, in the whole scheme of things is not a big deal so i think it's absolutely the right decision only and i say that because if the manager thinks it's the right decision based on what he's observing and what he feels in his gut then i don't i don't who i'm far be it for me to disagree because you know that's this is this is a a gem that they've got and they've got to treat it, treat him right. As we record this show, Luke French, who started for Porcello, he's gone five innings and he's given up no runs. So it looks like a good decision so far. We'll go to Jay Ellett with this question: Say Luke French wasn't having the success that he had in his first start against the Twins, and you have to throw maybe a, a healthy Dontrell Willis out there or somebody else to that extent. Would you still make this move to sit down Rick Porcello? You mean yes. Well, when I look at the other end of the, the matchup and I see Zach Greinke out there, uh, I want to spare anybody on my pitching staff from that. And I know that I've gotten to him a little bit tonight, but uh, I would rather start Rick Knapp than Rick Porcello against <laughs> Zach Greinke in this game. He struggled his last few. He's young. And while I believe that, that young guys should be able to tough it out and throw all the innings, I'm going to lose that argument. The, the coaches and the, the trainers are going to say he needs a break physically, he needs a break mentally. So, yes, I would have, at this point, uh, against a tough pitcher that you're expecting to almost take a mulligan on, this is the perfect opportunity right before the break to sit him down, give him a little rest, see what somebody can do. So coming out of the break, at least you have a good idea. Rick Knapp, the next oil can boy, told you by Jay Ellett Lambie. Hey, John, a Tiger guys, want to ask you your opinion on this as well. And you look at what Rick Porcello's done in the first half. 
Do you think that this move is simply just to give the young arm some rest, or is it because he has struggled in the last few starts? If I remember right, you did get to see him in Oakland. I think they were going to do it either way when they had a chance. Uh, maybe it wasn't going to be this week, but it, it was going to be at some point. I think the issue with the fifth starter probably pushed it back a little bit. It might have happened earlier in June, maybe, when they had some extra off days. I mean, he hasn't looked bad. He just kind of all of a sudden, you know, he looked great, and then all of a sudden there's, you know, three hits against him, and then, he, you know, he kind of loses his, his composure. I, th- I mean, I think he'll be fine, but they really have no other options. They can't demote him. They can't, you know, Ryan Perry, they sent him down to get some work. They really can't do that with Porcello. So in this instance, it's really their, their only option um, on top of the fact that they're planning on doing it anyway. He'll still get a side session working with Rick Knapp. Um, he remains with the team. Um, I mean, it's kind of win-win for everybody. You have, you have the days off to do it, so it doesn't hurt anything. Finally, before we close out this program, I want to look, talk a little bit about the All-Star game. It's an interesting situation. Granderson's in, Verlander's in, Jackson in, and possibly Brandon Inge. I've been voting, like, like I mentioned on the website, I voted over 200 times the first day they released the fact that Inge was on the ballot. And this whole brand Torino thing, I don't know if you guys heard about it. What do you guys think about the Phillies and the Tigers coming together for votes? I think it was a, a brilliant marketing ploy for the Tigers to team up with the Phillies. Uh, every team's going to pump their own guy. Uh, but when you vote for your guy, you have to pick someone in the other league. So by combining with the Phillies to uh, to work that side of the deal, I think that gives them a leg up early on. And don't forget, Brandon Inge is now and has historically been an incredibly popular guy on this team even when he was struggling, even when he was playing terrible baseball offensively. Fans adore this guy. Uh, I don't think there's anybody on this team who would get the kind of groundswell of support that Brandon is getting right now. And I'm rooting for him. I I really hope that that it works out. I was on, like I mentioned, I was on the Seth Speaks program, and it was hard to explain to him that I was voting for Ainge, maybe not because of his performance, but because he's been a guy that's been around since 2003, before that as well, and he's been through the struggles. And it, you see a guy in Brandon Ainge that when you know he gets to St. Louis, he'd be excited to be there. And, and Greg, I want to ask you about the All-Star game. Do you watch this as a fan, or do you watch kind of watch it with one eye as maybe this isn't as exciting as maybe regular season action? You know, I... I used to really, 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 really get into the All-Star game when I was younger. Uh, I, I, when I grew up in an, in an era when the National League was routinely beating the the, the drums of the uh, American League. Um, I mean, just uh, the only for a while, the only All-Star game that the American League won was the one in 1971 in Detroit. I think the National League won like 13 or 14 out of 15 or something ridiculous like that. And I used to get really, really upset as a child watching the National League beat the American League year after year. Now it's kind of like, you know, I, I, the thing that kind of strikes me about the whole let's make it uh, determine the, the home field advantage of the World Series, I, I find that kind of funny because I've talked to, to big league players and I've heard them talk to other people, and they've always said that, look, even though it's an exhibition game, we want to win. There's nobody that doesn't want to win that game. And to make it, to create this false, you know, hey, now it means something. You know, that's kind of like that was the bad campaign. I mean, it's always meant something to the players. They've always wanted to win that game. I mean, yeah, they have a lot of fun, and yeah, it's an exhibition. But don't fool yourself for one second that there wasn't some pride involved when the, when the National League would beat the American League or vice versa. I don't think we needed to add the extra, the, you know, the, the extra carrot on the stick of, of there being a home field advantage for the World Series. Uh, I always think, I still think it should just be determined on 
regular season record like every other you know team sport uh, does. <laughs> so uh, you know, but as far as how do I look at it, um, it it's I think it's lost something for me. I don't know if it's just maybe my age or, or just something that uh, I, I think it's just way too commercial now and it's just not as quaint as it used to be. And uh, but um, you know, uh, it's it's three days off. It's a break. <laughs> so you know, it's uh, it's it's uh, I just it's something I just kind of you know uh, it, it doesn't really get my uh, my uh, uh, emotions going like it used to. John and Tiger guys, this has to be an interesting time for you because you do root for the Oakland, you root for San Francisco because you live in that area, but also you're a Tigers fan. Which team do you root for? I always, when I was a kid, I always just wanted to see the Tiger get in. You know, when it was Travis Fryman, he'd have to pinch run at second base or something. You just kind of be listening for that. Right. Uh, I, uh, you know, I, I kind of like what was Greg was saying. I, I feel like as a kid, it was, it was just this big deal. Um, and I don't know if it's interleague that killed it, but, you know, there's some of those, you know, in high school and stuff, some of the, the matchups, like the, when Pedro Martinez just mowed down the National League, he struck out the side to open the game once. When, you know, when, when uh, John Cruck just made it, you know, embarrassed himself against Randy Johnson just because he didn't want to get, want to get out of the way. Those were some of the, the memorable moments. Um, but now it just doesn't seem, you know, now it just seems like the players, not that they don't want to win, but it's like you're just worried about they're going to destroy a pitcher's arms because they have to, you know, they have to throw the guy who threw two days earlier because they need, they're out of arms or something um, just because they have to finish the game in the 13th inning. And it, it seems like for me, you know, I root for the American League, but from a selfish uh vantage point i don't i don't really want jackson or verlander to throw i want them to get some rest and i don't want him to get (laughs) well that's fair enough as well i know both johns on the program are voting for the big panda looking for him to get in the game i think this is interesting what do you guys think of the fan vote i mean for me i feel more invested in the game because i've been voting for Inge and i've been voting for for the other guy on the opposite side i think it's fun uh major league baseball has to adapt to a younger fan base and more interactive ideas allow them to connect with that that younger generation and hopefully build a you know a fan base going forward and uh, when you narrow it down to five guys at the end that all can make the case that they were snubbed and it, it's almost this sort you know uh, reality show kind of voting and you see the promotional things that the teams go through to to get their guy out there it's fun the game should be about fun it's an exhibition John talked about the, the moments that you remember from the game. I couldn't tell you who won the All-Star game from most any year that you would name. But I remember John Crock standing in the opposite batter's box. I, you know, I remember some of these fun moments from the game. And, and I think letting the fans have more of a say involved, even though they're going to make mistakes, they're going to pick guys that probably don't deserve to be there every year. It's about the fans and it's about fun. Just let it be. Yeah, the things that I remember, one of the most things I remember, you go back to that Pedro performance. You remember the things off the field, too, when Ted Williams took the field in Fenway Park that year, one of the last times we actually saw him in public, and that's what the games are really about. Well, to close out the show, I want to go through the panel, and I want to ask one question. Does Justin Verlander or Edwin Jackson deserve the opening inning start in the the All-Star game? We'll start with Jay Ellen. Do they deserve it? Yes, I think they both do. I would take... Edwin, myself, over Justin, only because if he had proper run support, he'd probably have 10 or 11 wins right now. But I think both of them deserve it, but neither one will get the start. All right, go ahead, Greg. What do you think? you think that Edwin Jackson or Justin Verlander deserve the start? I, I agree with, uh, with that. I think that uh, 
I would give Edwin the, the nod, and I think people do deserve it, though, uh, when push comes to shove. And I also agree that they probably, neither of them will probably get it. And I will also echo what was said about being um, um, selfish and not wanting either of them really to, you know, I, I, is, is, is Verlander going to start Sunday? Is that, is that that's a normal turn, isn't it? Yeah, I believe he will be starting on Sunday. I just can't imagine him throwing anything, I mean, with one day's rest. I mean, unless it's just for a couple of batters. I mean, that would be kind of uh, uh, risky, wouldn't it? It would seem so. I'm not sure. I thought that he was going to make the start, but that's a good point. I mean, I'll just echo what everyone else said. I'll be honest. I haven't seen the pitching roster on the – I've been too busy voting for Brandon Inge. I don't know. Who else is on there? But I would definitely, you know, Verlander Jackson, and I'd probably go with Jackson for, you know, two reasons. One, I think he's been great, and two, I think he'll have more rest. Well, one Tiger will be taking the field on Sunday at Bush Stadium, and it's not Justin Verlander, Edwin Jackson, Brandon Inge, or Curtis Granderson. When we come back, Matt Wallace of Take 75 North will join us for the Prospect on the Prowl segment, and we'll be talking about Scott Sizemore, the second baseman in the All-Star Futures game. That's all coming up next on This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. I don't care if he's slash, dash, double, or trouble. D'Angelo Williams has the goods to play in the National Football League. Blanker right, split and left, DeLone. On a handoff up the middle, D'Angelo Williams first into the clear and takes it to the house for a score. It's the show that's all about your Carolina Panthers. Catch the great debate, the interview, and much, much more, including interviews and opinion. It's the best Carolina Panthers podcast alive. Catch it at catcrave.com. They're not growling, they're not biting, heck, they're not even angry. But these young players have a future in the old English D. It's time for Prospects on the Prowl on MotorCityBengals.com. Here's Joe Dexter. Now joining us on Prospects on the Prowl and this week in Detroit Tigers baseball is Matt Wallace of Take 75 North. Hey, Matt, how's it going? Good. How you doing, Joe? Doing great. Well, today we want to talk a little bit about Scott Sizemore, who is coming into his own as a prospect at the AAA level. He'll be playing in the All-Star Futures game on Sunday in St. Louis, part of the All-Star weekend. And Matt, can you give us a little bit of a profile on this guy? Tell us a little bit about him. He was a pick in the early rounds of the 2006 draft, you know, and he came up. He was behind a couple of his teammates, Ronnie Berkwin and Brennan Bosch, but you know, he went through uh, Oneonta and West Michigan with those guys. And uh, at West Michigan, he kind of separated himself from those two, at least. And earned a trip to uh, Arizona Fall League. Did really well there. Impressed the Tigers in spring training, you know, last year. And then it was kind of weird because after, you know, all that all that promise, he got to Lakeland and, you know, the results were kind of, yeah, not so great. And then he got hurt, you know, missed half a season. And I think people kind of forgot about him because of, uh, you know, Will Rimes having a pretty good year last year. Age compared to the level he was playing in, he was probably neck and neck with Mike Holloman all along as the Tigers' best second base prospect. And, uh, you know, he's really run with that mantle this season. He really hit well in Erie. You know, he's backed off a little bit on incredible numbers in Erie to, you know, just hit solidly in Toledo. 
by everything I've read, he's a smart player. I did see him play a couple times when he was at West Michigan. Smart player, aware of the, aware of the situation he's in. I think he's going to be a solid defensive second baseman. I don't think he's going to be, uh, you know, like a Chase Utley out there. I don't think he's going to embarrass himself or the team either, though. It's all culminating in the Futures game, and, you know, hopefully he'll make a good showing there. And, you know, you got to believe you're going to see him uh, probably when they expand the rosters in September. Sizemore's development so far, 303 in Toledo this year. Placido Polanco, the current starter who is not under contract for next year, is a career 303 hitter, but he's only hitting in the 260s so far this year. Do you think Sizemore can step into the starting role, maybe if he has a solid spring training going to 2010? Yeah, yeah, I, I think he could. I don't know if, if the Tigers will just put all their eggs in that basket. I think they might do something like keep the equivalent of Everett and Santiago. I'm not saying they're going to bring those guys back, but you know, have those kind of guys around and maybe cycle in Sizemore. I could see them doing that instead of just saying this guy's our second baseman. I don't know. They just seem to be hesitant to do that with rookies. I think he could do it if pressed. I think he could, and I certainly think the Tigers are preparing for that. I I went to the Tiger uh, Fest in January at Comerica, and (laughs) a fan asked Dombrowski, you know, any chance we're going to sign Polanco to an extension, and it was a, a pretty clear dodge on Dombrowski's part when he answered that question. Obviously, he's not going to say, yeah, we're going to sign him for three years, but I, I just think all signs are pointing to, you know, Polanco getting a chance to try and make some money somewhere else. Say that Placido Polanco does come back. It's not going to be a long-term extension, is it? It's going to be more of a short one-year deal just to work things out for a guy like Scott Sizemore? Yeah, I, and you know, and I, I talked about... um cycling him in and I should clarify that's just me thinking that's you know I don't have any sources or anything on that <laughs> but I mean if they brought him back you know they could work size more in that way you know just as kind of a backup at first and then get to where they're comfortable that he can be an everyday player and then slide him in there I could see the Tigers offering Flanco arbitration this year kind of hoping that he'd turn it down so that they would maybe get a draft pick or two for him and then you know, if he accepts it, that's fine, too. I really think the Tigers would be fine either way. And if, if things go well with Sizemore, they might not even offer Polanco arbitration just on the chance that he would take it and they don't want him to. One question that I have concerning Polanco, say that a team is interested in, at the deadline, is Sizemore a guy that can step in and be successful in this playoff run? I think he could. I, I'd just be curious to see if anyone was confident enough in him being able to do that to actually pull the trigger. With the timing of him getting promoted to Toledo, whenever that kind of thing happens, you kind of try and figure out what they're doing. You know, I thought, well, maybe they want to see, you know, get him close to Detroit so they can keep an eye on him and, you know, maybe shop Polanco because he could be, you know, he's got a good contract. You know, they might want to see what they could get for him, but, Tigers have done a lot of things that surprised me over the last couple of years, but that would be a big one, I think, if they traded Polanco and handed the job to a rookie. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, thank you for your time. Enjoy the All-Star break and take some time off. All right. Thank you. Enjoy uh, Futures game on Sunday. Well, it should be fun to watch.
Matt Walls of Take 75 North, kind enough to join us for the prospects on the Prowl. You can catch all of his work at mvn.com slash take 75 North. Coming up on this week in Detroit Tigers baseball history, we'll head back to the summer of 1911 when Ty Cobb hit 420 and had 83 stolen bases. That's all coming up next on this week in Detroit Tigers baseball. We're proud to be standing there like a house on the side of the road, and we cheer when your Tiger hits it long gone. MotorCityBangles.com, part of the Fansided Network at Fansided.com. Brian turned to glance at the pilot, who suddenly had both hands on his stomach and was grimacing in pain. I don't know, kid. The pilot's words were a hiss, barely audible. Bad aches here. Bad aches. He stopped as a fresh spasm of pain hit him. The pilot was having a heart attack. Brian saw the pilot slam into the seat one more time. One more awful time he slammed back into the seat, and his right leg jerked, pulling the plane to the side. Brian was sitting in a bush plane, roaring 7,000 feet above the northern wilderness with a pilot who had suffered a massive heart attack and who was either dead or in something close to a coma. He was alone. In the roaring plane, he was alone. The plane, committed now to crashing, fell like a stone, and Brian eased back and braced himself for the crash. Explore new worlds. Find out what happens next by reading the book Hatchet by Gary Paulson. For other great book ideas, visit literacy.gov. A message from the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Breaking ball. Hit the deep left field. Back goes Martinez. Goodbye. Four World Series championships, 20 Hall of Famers, and in existence since 1901. We wear the Old English D proudly since 1904 because it is our heritage. It's time for this week in Detroit Tigers history on MotorCityBengals.com. Welcome back to this week in Detroit Tigers baseball. I'm Joe Dexter, and this week we go back to look in history to a year that was very special in Detroit Tigers baseball, 1911. The Tigers finished 82-72 and 72 and finished in second place in the American League, 13 and a half games back behind the Philadelphia Athletics. But it was a season to remember because we talk about that 1984 team that got off to a 35-5 and five start. 1911 squad got off to a phenomenal 21-2 and two start, and it was a battle, much like the 1961 battle between Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris. Well, this time it had to deal with every single statistic. As best two hitters in Major League Baseball in 1911 played in the outfield for the Detroit Tigers, Ty Cobb and Sam Crawford. Cobb led the league in batting average at 420 when the season was all said and done. He led in RBIs, stolen bases, slugging runs, hits, total bases, doubles, and extra base hits. Meanwhile, Crawford was not far behind, ranking in the top three in batting average, slugging, hits, total bases, and RBIs in the American League. The team ranked best in the American League in runs scored, but the pitching staff's earned run average of 373 was the second worst in the league. So that was what the 1911 season was all about. The big key factor was a guy named Ty Cobb, who explained on Coca-Cola Radio later in his career what baseball really was to him. Baseball, to me, was more work than play. In fact, it was all work. You see, I was lucky enough to lead the league when I was 20 years old. After that, I wanted to lead it every year. I never thought I was any genius, so I gave up my life to the game for 25 years. I suppose I was in nearly 30,000 plays, and I at least tried to think about every play. 
and uh, how it should be made. As I said before, you had to do more thinking in the old days when home runs were fewer. Games were close. They counted. The two most important things in base stealing are getting the jump on the pitcher and making your slide away from the baseman. In stealing bases, I always watched the baseman's eyes to know where the ball was coming. His eyes had to watch the ball. I didn't have the time for this, but his eyes told me. And then I knew where to throw my body away from the baseman. Well, you, you can't beat the babe. Ruth is one of the few who can take a terrific swing and still meet the ball solidly. His timing is perfect. Lajaway was the hardest line hitter I ever saw, and I'd like to see Sam Crawford, Joe Jackson, and Frank Schutte lay against this modern ball. Since Ty Cobb left the game in 1928, the modern-day game has never seen a player like him. Ty Cobb, a Detroit Tiger from 1905 to 1926. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for episode number four. You're listening to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball on MotorCityBengals.com, part of the fan-sided network. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I don't know how to talk like a parent. Don't make me come back there. You see what I mean? It's pretty awful. Try it again. Don't make me come back there. Now, that's pretty good. That one kind of sounded like my dad. Weird. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball. Here's your host, Joe Dexter. Welcome back to This Week in Detroit Tigers Baseball, episode number four. I'm Joe Dexter, and the Detroit Tigers sit a pretty lofty three and a half games ahead of the Chicago White Sox in the American League Central as they wrap up the first half of the season, taking on the Cleveland Indians this weekend. A big win in game number one, five to one over the Cleveland Indians. Marcus Timms had a pair of insurance runs for the Tigers when he hit that home run in the eighth inning. It looks good so far for the Tigers as they head into break. Four All-Stars this year, as we talked about. Brandon Inch will be heading to the All-Star game. He's voted in. He'll be hitting in the Home Run Derby as well. He'll be joined by Curtis Granderson in the All-Star game, Edwin Jackson, and Justin Verlander. Also catch Scott Sizemore, the prospect on the prowl for this week. He'll be in the All-Star Futures game. Well, for J.L. at Lambie at eyeofthetigers.com, John Brunn at tigergeist.com, Greg Eno of gregeno.com and enotalksbaseball.blogspot.com, and Matt Wallace of Take75North at mvn.com slash Take75North. I want to thank you for joining me. Have a great week, and go Tigers. It was great to be a Tiger fan with a Georgia peach and Wahoo Sam. They won the pennant three years in a row. Then Heilman led the squad, batting titles in years that were odd. Brick Stadium always had a hitting show. I'm talking baseball. Hank and Charlie slugging Tiger baseball. Schoolboys did the chucking. Goose Goslin made opposing pitchers scream. Then Georgie Kelly came upon the scene. I'm talking baseball. The Motor City team.